If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Bi. It's Wonder Water. What makes Bi so great? It's simple. From raspberry lemon lime by Sydney Sweeney to Zambia Bing Cherry and Palavo Pineapple Mango, Bi has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. So for flavorful hydration, choose Bi. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about Bi and discover all of the exotic, bold flavors at drinkbi.com. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In December 1900, on a remote Scottish island, three lighthouse keepers vanished without a trace. So what happened to them? Well, the novelist Emma Stonex talks to our content director David Musgrove about this mystery and about the experience of lighthouse keeping generally. Today we're talking about lighthouse history and uh, the lives of lighthouse keepers, or more specifically about the curious case of the Flannan Island lighthouse mystery and a new reimagining of that story in the form of an extraordinary and brilliant novel by Emma Stonex uh, called The Lamplighters. Um, So we're going to talk about history and fictionalising history in this podcast. Before we start, just we need a a smidge of context. Um, Lighthouses, of course, are a familiar feature of the British and Irish coastline and elsewhere in the world, wherever there's a hazard to shipping that needs warning. Uh, There's a long tradition, but I think most around the coastline today were built from 
the late 17th century onwards, uh, with lots from the Victorian period and a, and a few more recent. There's kind of a distinction between uh, rock lighthouses, the ones the ones that were built onto reefs or sea rocks out in, in the uh, out in the water, and those which stand on islands or the mainland. Uh, and, and I guess the experience of being a lighthouse keeper on one of those more remote lighthouses lighthouses was was a bit different to being on the mainland. We'll probably talk a bit about both of those uh, in this conversation. So Emma, um, uh, thank you very much for joining us and congratulations on the book. As I was just telling you, it's a brilliant read. So um, so thank you for, for joining us. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Good stuff. Um, so First up, let's talk a, a little bit about this uh, this mystery that I, uh, uh, I talked about in the introduction from the year uh, 1900. Uh, it's centred on the Flannan Islands, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, uh, which are uh, sort of an isolated group of islands. I think uh, I read 21 miles to the west of the Outer Hebrides, uh, the Isle of Lewis, so up, uh, up in Scotland. Uh, there's a lighthouse there that was constructed at the end of the 19th century on one of these islands, uh, which is called uh, Eileen Moor. Uh, and then in in the year 1900, something happened. So can you um, can you give us a bit of a rundown about what we know about that story? Well, I first came across this story many years ago, and it's never left me. It has such an eerie fascination for me. Lighthouses do in general, but particularly this real-life mystery. So in 1900, a relief boat was sent to the island of Ilian Moor, um, to relieve one of the lighthouse keepers there. And when the boat arrived, it found the island completely deserted. Um, this was on Boxing Day in 1900. And in fact, a ship had passed on its way from America 10 days before and noticed that the lighthouse was not lit. But nobody reported this to the Northern Lighthouse Board at the time. The Northern Lighthouse Board is the body who looks after lighthouses in Scotland. Um, when the investigating crew went up to the lighthouse, they found the entrance gate was shut. They found the door to the lighthouse was shut. They found the door to the kitchen open and the lighthouse completely clean and well-maintained. Now, this was typical of lighthouse keepers. They're very, they were very um, fastidious and meticulous in domestic matters and took great pride in looking after the light and everything in it. Um, so this suggested that they left the lighthouse in a constant state, that they hadn't needed to leave in a hurry, but no sign of life was found and no response was made to calls and inquiries from the relief boat. To this day, more than 120 years later, nobody knows what happened to those three men. So it's it's a, a proper mystery, isn't it? And and the names of those keepers are so their free keepers um, who were, who would have been uh, on that lighthouse: uh, James Ducat, Thomas Marshall, and uh, Donald MacArthur. And that was traditional, was it? In in these lighthouses, you have um, uh, that number of keepers uh, living on board a, a lighthouse. Yeah, that's right. And funnily enough, um, I mean, lighthouse history is riddled with these strange stories. Um, and actually, lighthouses used to be manned by two keepers. This was up until, I think, around the 1750s. Um, but that was upgraded to three keepers after another tragic event on Small's Lighthouse off the coast of Wales, where one of the keepers died on a stay of duty. And the other one was so fearful of being accused of his murder that he kept the body, the dead body, with him for the weeks remaining until the relief. Um, which you can imagine would have been a really horrific set of circumstances. 
Um, and after that, um, it was decided that there should be three men um, going forward on a lighthouse just in case of, of a similar thing happening again. But yes, um, typically in the time that we're talking about, it would be three keepers on a light. And as you said, so the the place when it was found wasn't in disarray. And uh, I think uh, in the initial report um, from uh, Mr. Moore, the uh, the other assistant lightkeeper who wasn't on the station at the time, uh, he he quotes, he says, when he went up to the station, he found the entrance gate and outside outside doors closed. The clock stopped, no fire lit, and looking into the bedrooms, he found the beds empty. So it's it's clearly that you know that they have left. In a in 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 a state of you know that they they knew what they were doing. There wasn't they wasn't rushed out. Yeah, I mean we can. I, I think because the the mantle as well they they lit the mantle to um to light the light up in the lantern and that was all cleaned and the wick was trimmed and that was all ready to go for the night watch. So investigators estimated that they had probably left the lighthouse or something had happened to them on the afternoon of the 15th of December. So they were able to trace it back to that because of the report from the passing ship from America and because of the wick being trimmed in readiness for the night. Um, They think something happened that afternoon. I think the weather log was also filled in up until the 15th as well. That would explain why the clocks had stopped if you imagine that nobody had wound them for a week or whatever it would have been since the 15th, more than a week. Um, But since then, all sorts of strange theories have abounded to explain the clocks, to explain the closed doors. Visitors to the island have claimed to see three strange birds circling the tower or bright lights in the sky above the lighthouse. And it is that the kind of thing that really feeds your imagination and makes you wonder, what if it wasn't as prosaic as the sea washing them away? What if something else was at play? And it's fascinated people for over a century. And there's a couple of things that sort of play into that. There? there was, I think you mentioned the uh, the weather logbook. There were some strange entries in the logbook about stormy weather uh, in the preceding few days when uh, other accounts suggest that the weather wasn't too stormy. And then in terms of the, uh, the the cloves left, there was sort of one man set of outer garments still in the uh, in in the lobby of the lighthouse, which suggests that one man had left without his outer weather gear on. So there's mm. there's some, there's lots of things that you can play with if you're looking for a mystery, aren't there? There are. And like all real-life mysteries and historical events, things become distorted in the years that follow it by various rumours and, and whispers that soon become fact. The poem Flannan Isle by Wilfred Gibson introduces the idea of um, the table being laid for a meal which I don't think was actually the case, if you look at the real account, and a chair that was knocked over as though somebody had risen quickly in a state of panic. But over time, these details have been kind of accepted into the the family surrounding this event. Um, And it becomes difficult to pick out which is fact and which is fiction. But certainly the real event has remained unexplained, and we still don't know for sure what happened to those keepers. But the the official explanation uh, at the time in uh, 1901, there was a report. Um, it was basically that uh, the keepers had gone to uh, like a mooring stage on the island and it been there must have been really bad weather. They'd been trying to sort out uh, a box of tackle which had become loose or something and, and a wave had swept them away. That's, that's, that's what they concluded at the time. That's what they concluded. There was some... Um, so I think the eastern stage was undamaged. The Western landing stage did have damage. And what's really heartbreaking is that they noticed that the life buoy 
had been removed from um, the rocks, but that not that it had been used for the purpose it was intended, that it would have been swept away by a wave. And this is the, the funny thing that the sea is so unpredictable. So I think at that time, the sea was calm, but they'd obviously gone out in anticipation of bad weather. If it had been bad weather at the time, they would have all been wearing their oilskins and their sousters, but they weren't. So that suggests the weather wasn't that bad when they all went out. Um, but the sea just rose up or came at them out of nowhere, or was it something else? Um, it is a, it's a really strange situation. I find it so compelling. So I, I did a, a little Google map of the, of the, of the island to so just try and get a sense of it just now to try and see, you know, you can do the, uh, the, the, the vertical view and have a look at it. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's an island with the lighthouse on, so they're not just stuck in the lighthouse. They can go around and there's, there's a bit of land around there, isn't there? But it is, um, it is very much uh, isolated. Oh, it's so remote. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a rock light or an island light, so there is land around it which would have certainly helped, as opposed to being in a, in a tower light, which is one that comes right about the middle of the sea, you would have had a little bit of land and you would have been able to sort of wander about and stretch your legs. Um, but yeah, it would have been extremely remote and isolated for those three men. And so, um, as you said, it sort of captured uh, popular imagination. There have been lots of theories. You've outlined some of them. There's, I was just listing some of them. Uh, some sort of sea monster or a massive bird some sort of ghostly presence, a planned escape perhaps, an abduction by foreign spies, or perhaps even violence between the keepers. And uh, there's, a, there's a film uh, very recently, a couple of years ago, called The Vanishing, uh, where that, that latter um, uh, line is taken. And there's a, there's a, it's quite a, it's a very dark film, actually. I'm not sure if you've seen it. Have you, have I haven't, have actually. I, I didn't want it to kind of... Um affect me when I was writing the lamplighters. So I thought I'll keep it at a distance until I'm done and dusted. Um, I would be very interested to see it. And also the film Lighthouse by Robert Eggers um, with Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson that is a portrait of, of two keepers descending into madness on a very remote light in Maine in the US. So I'd be interested to see that as well. Yeah. So, so like basically, for a century or so, it's it's captured imagination, and uh, and people are still talking about it. Um, and and you uh, have 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 reimagined it. But um, you've taken a different tack. You've translated this story into a, into a different place and time in your book, uh, with the disappearance of three lighthouse keepers from a, a lighthouse off off the Cornish coast. And your time is 1972. So. Uh, Three quarters of a century on from uh, from where we uh, where we started, and uh, your fictional lighthouse is more like one of these these sea lighthouses, isn't it? It's not really got much around it. Um, are, th are, th are those the main differences in your story? What's is that? Is that a, a reasonable summation? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think the important thing to remember about this real event was that it really happened. These men really presumably lost their lives real families suffered and I didn't want to trespass onto that too heavily so it felt really important to me to fictionalize it to reimagine it to move it to another time and place the northern lighthouse board says on on their website that, that the vanishing the flannel's vanishing is a significant and very sad part of our history so I didn't want to kind of um tread on too many toes um, so I've moved mine, as you say, down to the Cornish coast, which is the home of, for me, the most wonderful tower lighthouses. You have the Bishop Rock, the Longships, the Wolf Rock, 
round off Plymouth, you've got the famous Eddiston. And the southwest for me is just uh, the home of the great, great tower lights. Um, And also the 1970s were a really interesting period in lighthouse keeping. It was the decade preceding automation. So now all the lighthouses in the UK are electric. I think the last one to be automated was 1996. Um, from Trinity House. I think the Northern Lighthouse Ball was 1998. Um, But yes, in the 70s, they were all still manned, but there was this sense of the wick burning low of the occupation coming to an end. Um, And it was also a really interesting decade for social mobility. So the Lighthouse Service was attracting men from a far wider variety of backgrounds than it had previously. Previously, it would have been men who had a nautical tradition in their families, um, But people were coming to the lights from prison, who used to be in prison, because they were used to, of course, a very confined way of life, which could be useful. Ex-lorry drivers, university students. So the characters attracted to the lighthouses was much more for me to get my teeth into for the lamplighters. And I should say, I should have said at the start, we're gonna we're gonna have a little chat about your book, but we're we're not gonna go into too much detail because I don't want to uh, put in loads of spoilers for people so they can't enjoy the book. But but you, your your range of characters does uh, does cross over some of those uh, those those things you just talked about. I'm just gonna go back. So so your author's note at the start of the book does make that point that uh, uh, the book is inspired by and written in respectful memory of uh, of the uh, Flannan Islands event, but it is a work of fiction and and therefore bears no resemblance to those men's lives all those characters so that's why you didn't just sort of novelize the original story I guess were you tempted to just try and retell the the 1900 story no for several reasons the main one was I, I didn't want to be insensitive or disrespectful to the real men and their families um the other one was I really didn't want to wrap my ear around turn of the century Scottish dialect which I really think would be beyond me um, and I was just much more attracted to the the 1970s period, it's how, where I'd done a lot of my reading around Lighthouse Keeper's memoirs from that period in history. Um, so for me, that felt like a more natural fit. And, and your fictional lighthouse, which is called The Maiden, um, you mentioned some of these other uh, famous Cornish lighthouses. Is it based on one of them specifically or just sort of an um, amalgamation of, of some of them? I think the one it's closest to is The Wolf Rock, which is um, off the Isles of Scilly. Um, I, I believe it's 18 miles from Land's End, Wolf Rock. So it's really far out. And if you stand at Land's End, you can see a tower light about a mile away, which is called the Longships. But on a clear day, if you squint, you can just make out this remote matchstick in the distance on the horizon, which is the Wolf Rock. And that was a notorious lighthouse among keepers for being really unpleasant and hostile, very stifling inside, so far from land. It's called the Wolf Rock because of the howling sound that the wind makes uh, around the rocks at its base. And as you touched on, there's no space outside the wolf at all. It comes right up off the reef. So there really isn't anywhere for you to be apart from inside this lighthouse. And these lighthouses were 12 feet from 12 feet across. So a few strides for a man, and that was it. Really narrow. All the rooms, one on top of each other. And of course, you're living with two other men in a very confined space. It must have been quite a thing. Yeah, and so the atmosphere on, on Wolf Rock must have been a very strange one, and, and perhaps we'll come back to that. So so the men were on there, and, and the way it works is you went on for a, a, a set stint, and then you were relieved by uh, by by, by a, a colleague. So you're on there for, I think, was it, would it two months? Would that be an, a normal yeah, month of service? Yeah, eight weeks 
on, well, they used to term it eight weeks off, they would say, so eight weeks off on the light and then four weeks ashore and then eight weeks off and back again. Um, but of course, if the weather turned and the relief boat was delayed, occasionally these keepers were on a light for three months at a time, if not more. And then it was agonizing for the families left at home waiting for thinking you're going to see somebody and then the sea turns against you or the boatman doesn't want to do it that day. And then it's extended and the weather gets worse. It was a very inexact science as anything is to do with nature. And and the actual process of getting uh, a new keeper, a relief keeper, onto some of these lighthouses was 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 sometimes pretty difficult, wasn't it? They were you know all sorts of elaborate winches and and difficult things like that to to get somebody from uh, a ship floating in possibly stormy weather, uh, stormy seas into into the uh, body of the lighthouse. Yeah, that must have been really hairy. Nowadays, all of the towers have helipads on top, so the mechanics will land and climb down through the gallery to do their work. Um, but traditionally, the keepers would land um, using a, a boat and a harness. So somebody would be on the set-off on the lighthouse, which is the ring that goes around the lighthouse underneath the entrance door. And you would have a couple of keepers there with a harness and a rope. And then the keeper who was coming off the boat and onto the lighthouse would have to wrap a harness under his armpits um, and his bum and sit on it. And it, you can just imagine the sea pitching up and down, frothing up and down underneath you and the boatman trying to steady, because he has to, he can't um, anchor the boat, he has to move with the water. So these were really experienced boatmen who had to try and gauge just the right time to winch this man up. And it must have been really unpleasant. A, a broadly terrifying experience, <laughs> I, would, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast because all of the lighthouses are empty, they automatically carry a ghostly feeling, as any building does that's long been abandoned. But they also have this eerie feeling because so few people have ever been on them, especially the tower lights. They're buildings that the keepers and the mechanics would have gone to, but the wives of the keepers would never have gone on. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P dot com slash History Extra. So you advocate the, the constrained lighthouse life really well in, in your book and, and give a sense of the, the, the strange uh, combination of domesticity. Um, everyone, the lighthouse keeps having to cook and clean for themselves and, and, the, and the rigours of that and how fastidious they were about that uh, alongside, um, you know, the possible engineering tasks they might have to do and cleaning the, the light and stuff like that. So can you give us a sense about that and, and how much... Uh, how much did you research uh, the actual historical um, life of lighthouse keepers for the book? Oh, I did a lot of research. I came, as I, as I said, I came across the real historical disappearance about 10 years ago, um, but I only started writing it in 2018. So over the course of several years, I've read as many lighthouse keepers' memoirs as I could. A wonderful book that I read is Tony Parker's Lighthouse. I'm not sure if you've heard of Tony Parker. I'm sure some of your listeners have. He was an oral historian and he interviewed communities on the margins of society, um, including lighthouse keepers and their families. So I got a really good sense of the voices of these people who really did live that life and what it would have felt like. And that's what got me really interested in the psychology of lighthouse keeping, in what made a man want to go away to a light for eight weeks at a time or not. Some of them really didn't enjoy it. Some of them dreaded the idea of the tower light. So um, Trinity House um, for lighthouse keepers in England and Wales, Trinity House would post um, a keeper and his family to any light in the country. It could be sent anywhere. It could be a land light, could be an island light, could be a tower light. And a lot of these keepers really did not want the towers because of the isolation that we've been talking about. Other keepers loved the towers. They considered the towers to be a proper lighthouse, the kind of lighthouse they'd always wanted to work on that they might have dreamed about when they dreamed about lighthouse keeping. And they certainly are the most extreme lighthouses I can think of. Um, so that's what really interested me while I was researching the history of these lighthouse keepers was what it is in human nature that is attracted to that sort of desolate station. And uh, we, we sort of um, described the, the lighthouse keepers as men and they were um almost exclusively men I think when I think there were some examples on on the Wirral I was reading of, of uh, lighthouses that uh, that had um, women uh, female operators but but mostly it's it's men isn't it and that that does bring in that extra element as, as I was saying the domesticity side of things um the, these men were, were taught how to cook and clean for themselves which, which perhaps uh, weren't skills that were were familiar to them no that's another really interesting thing about that slice in history because I've no doubt that when these men went ashore, they didn't bake bread and polish things at home in, in their house on land. I'm sure that their wives would have done it in the traditional way in the 1970s. Um, but certainly on the lighthouse, they were sticklers for domestic standards. The Everything was polished to within an inch of its life. They wouldn't even touch the brass railings on the spiral staircase climbing up to the lantern because they would get fingerprints on them and then they'd have to clean them again later. So they took enormous pride and they also lived in expectation of one of the lighthouse inspectors coming to visit, which they would do without warning. And you wanted to make sure that everything was gleaming um, and in perfect condition. And obviously with the Flannan Isles disappearance, that was how they had left the lighthouse at that stage, which suggests that they had been in control of the lighthouse at the point at which they disappeared. Um, so, so yeah, so that's really fascinating, isn't it? And, and as you say, your book, you really uh, sort of delve into the psychology of it and try and understand how these, how, how your fictional lighthouse keepers might have um, might have got into the service and what sort of uh, what was driving them. And there's there's 
an interesting quote at the at the start of your book, which I think is from the from the book you reference, where um, uh, a lighthouse keeper talked about living two lives, living, I, I guess, a life on on the mainland and a life um, in the tower. So um, it, it, that, that's that's a fairly big theme, isn't it, as the separation of, of existences? Completely. And um, the quote you mentioned is two different men. I've been two men so long now, and that's from Tony Parker's book Lighthouse, which was spoken by a real keeper. And that's very much what the Lamplighters deals with is that kind of in-between space. A lot of these men who were on the tower lighthouses felt that they were in-between men. They didn't belong on land or on sea, on the lighthouse or ashore at home. Um, And the lighthouse itself is this weirdly in-between structure when you see it out on the water. It seems so counterintuitive to put a great big lump of granite in water and attempt to build from something as changeable and as, as the sea. I mean, it's just a completely mad idea. And yet the effort to produce these lighthouses um, took centuries to perfect. And if you look at the Edison Lighthouse off the coast of Plymouth, um, the one that we see standing there today is actually the fourth incarnation of the Edison. There's a little stump next to it called Smeaton Stump, which is the remains of the third effort. But before that, two previous ones were washed away as well. So it took them hundreds of years to work out how to do it. And so the lighthouse itself is this in-between space. It's neither one nor the other. And that's really a theme I wanted to explore in the book, uh, how lighthouses capture that feeling of being neither here nor there. I mean, it's not it's not a theme that you look at in the book um, at all. But the but the construction of these lighthouses you mentioned there is is fascinating. I was doing I was doing a bit of reading about that and and the way they were built in the uh, you know early nineteenth century and earlier. Um, it was was astonishing. There's I think the the one that's uh, that's still operational, the oldest still operational, I think is um, uh, Bell Bell Rock off Arbroath from eighteen eleven. I think I read, um, uh, and that's still there and still going. And the and the and the task of of building that and getting that um, uh, set up there was was something else. Um, so I guess that that probably also plays into the psychology of the lighthouse keepers knowing how much work's gone into into building the place that they're living in. Yeah, and it's also the idea that despite the challenges and the adverse conditions and the fact that so much investment and time was put into building these things only to see them washed away and only to see many men's lives lost in the construction of these monuments. But the effort persevered because it was so important to put those lights on the sea and to save people's lives. And I think that's an incredible Oh, it's just so richly symbolic. It's such a gift to an author, the idea of putting lights into dark places and the fact that against the odds, this this effort continued and succeeded. Um, And as you say, the effort started such a long time ago. So the first Edison began in 1698, so hundreds of years ago, um, at a time when we didn't have anything like the technology that we have now. No, No such thing as health and safety. It was just taking a lump of masonry out (laughs) into the middle of the water, hoping for a low tide and having a bunch of guys um, try and put something together. I mean, it was that rudimentary. Um, And yeah, I just think it's an incredible testament to engineering nous and sheer bravery. 
Yeah, phenom- phenomenal enterprise. Um, so look, an- another interesting theme in, in your book, in your novel, is uh, not just looking at the lives of the lighthouse keepers, which is kind of the obvious thing to do, isn't it? You know, they're, they're the people stuck on, on the rocks. But you you think about the the, uh, the wives and girlfriends uh, left back on the mainland. And I guess um, that's a, that, again, is a very interesting psychological thing, isn't it? Because they, uh, by default, are operating in a, in a weird uh, dual life as well. Of course, um, Helen in The Lamplighters, who is Arthur's wife, says at one point um, that she, when, when Arthur is away on the light, she is in charge of her house, um, which at, in the 1970s wasn't a typical position for a woman to be in. You're the authority figure with your children. You decide how things are run for eight weeks at a time. And then your husband will come back. And, and there was this weird sort of power tussle because you would then need to step back and let the man of the house, as it were, come back in and, and be in charge of everything. And often he didn't know his children very well because he hadn't seen them very much and they didn't know how to be around him. So it was a really interesting family dynamic. Um, and while, while we think of these keepers as being in isolated quarters, as the women were as well, the lighthouse service would provide accommodation, much as they do in the army, for families of lighthouse keepers. Um and often this, this, these accommodations would be quite far removed from civilization. I went down to stay in converted keepers' cottages at Bullpoint Lighthouse in Devon when I was writing the book. And it was the compound was down this narrow track. I had to get through three padlocked gates to get there. And it was right on the sea. And the sea was all you could see from the windows. And it was, it was weirdly claustrophobic, even though it was such an open seascape it did feel slightly oppressive just looking at this sea every day and it gave me an invaluable insight into what lives might have been like for those women as well as the men was there much um reference material that you were able to draw on for for the lives of the women were there any archives that uh, that, that you looked at for that or was that just a sort of a psychological imagining from uh, from the from the mind of the novelist um, it was a psychological imagining and it was also a product of the memoirs and the interviews that I read through the course of my research. It's also in what the men omit to say in their memoirs when they talk about their families. And you think then you're starting to read between the lines and thinking, how would, if I were married to this man or in a relationship with this man, how would his way of thinking about this affect me and how would that impact on our lives? So it was an imagining, yeah. Um, but what I felt came quite easily. Um, just a couple more questions. There's a, there's a, a kind of a slight ghostly subtext to to some of these lighthouse stories, and indeed in in, in your book. Um, and uh, I was I was reading a, a story about I don't know how to pronounce this. I think it's the Holberlin Lighthouse, um, which is uh, between Northern Ireland and uh, the Republic of Ireland. And apparently that was that was actually exercised in 1958 because because there was a, a feeling there was a, a ghost in there. Um, so you kind of you've got this sense of mystery and the supernatural sort of at play with these lighthouses. What what, what can you tell us about that? How how uh, how far is that in the in the archives in the and the recollections of the lighthouse keepers? I think nowadays, because all of the lighthouses are empty, they automatically carry a ghostly feeling, as any building does that's long been abandoned. But they also have this eerie feeling because so few people have ever been on them especially the tower lights, they're buildings that the keepers and the mechanics would have gone to, but the wives of the keepers would never have gone on. We touched briefly earlier on what it took to land on one of these towers. So that's not something that you're going 
that tourists do or or just people who are interested in lighthouses have a go at. Um, so that in itself means that they are they they carry this feeling of eeriness and abandonment, which certainly contributes to the ghostly element. But I think with any unsolved mystery, so thinking again about the real historical event on the Flannan Isles, um, that that just there have been talk there has been talk of supernatural elements like these birds that we talk about and the lights. Um, but I think with any unsolved mystery, that's a big part of the fascination for people is thinking, what if, what if, what if? Um, and so I definitely wanted to incorporate that in the lamplighters. I wanted to offer a resolution of my own, but I wanted to leave it open enough for readers to say, actually, I don't agree or I think it was something else, and to keep um, the mystery alive with enough oxygen of, of mystique, I suppose. And some of that definitely is to do with the supernatural. Okay, so um, so wrapping up, we won't we won't blow the gaff on on how your mystery um, transpires and what happens in in, in your novel. Uh, other than to say that um, listeners should read the book; it is an excellent book, and 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 you will learn a lot about uh, lighthouse keeping and, and the uh, and the experience of uh, historic lighthouse um, keepers. Um, but I, I just. Uh, your book sort of takes it on to the 1990s. That's that's where the the novel um, continues to, uh, and of course, lighthouses are still operational and important today. And as you said, you you stayed in in some cottages. For our listeners to get a sense of of the experience of uh, lighthouse life, aside from from reading your your novel, what else would you do? Would you would you where would you go to try and get a sense of of lighthouse history? Um, well, there are many lighthouses that you can visit on land. Um, it's quite difficult to stay in lighthouses proper, to stay in the towers themselves, but you can stay in converted keepers' cottages, which is what I did. And there are quite a few around the British Isles that you can stay in. Just a quick internet search of lighthouse keepers' cottages holiday, I'm sure, will come up with something. And that will give you a really nice idea about what it was like because um, the because they're listed buildings, they haven't been, they have been converted for holiday makers, but their character has not been changed at all. So when I stayed in the, in the cottage, it still felt fairly institutional because of course it is an institutional building. And that was really useful for me for research. And I think that's important to preserve the character of those buildings almost exactly as they were, um, because it's so enlightening for people nowadays, now that this is a vanished occupation. Okay, one more thing. Um, just a, a lot of our listeners are interested in historical fiction, and probably I think quite a few of our listeners um, aspire or perhaps even do write historical fiction themselves. Um, so you've written this novel. I'm not sure does it, it does it fit in the in the genre of historical fiction because it's not telling the actual historical story. What, how do you categorise it? And what advice would you give to people who want to uh, want to try and write um, historical novels? Um, the Lamplighters falls between several genres. In a way, it was very. I had a very specific idea about how I wanted to tell it, and I kept trying to push it into a certain genre or another genre, thinking that that was more commercially viable. But it just wasn't having it. It only wanted to be told in this way, and that, that's how it was. Um, so I would say that it's it's a little bit historical. It's a little bit of a ghost story, but primarily it's a mystery suspense. And if you're interested, not necessarily in lighthouses, but just in the unexplained and unsolved mysteries um then i would i would definitely give it a go and as for writing historical fiction i think the key thing is just to find something that you're really interested in as we said at the start of this chat i first read about the flannan isles disappearance 10 years ago and it just 
it just didn't ever go anywhere. And I was engaged in other projects for many years, but this lighthouse never left me alone. And if you can find something like that that you're really interested in and that you want to read about and learn as much about as possible, then that's a fine place to start. Um, it all starts with passion. Brilliant. Well, Emma, Emma Stonex, thank you so much for your time. And uh, The Lamplighters is uh, is on sale now. Um, and it, like I say, is a, is a great read. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. That was Emma Stonex. Her novel, The Lamplighters, is available now, published by Pan Macmillan. You can find a link in the show notes. If you're interested in historical mysteries, then why not check out our episode from earlier this week on the disappearance of the Franklin Expedition. That aired on the 20th of March. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. <laughs>